House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. You're back in the House of Mystery on KKNW 1150 AM Seattle. I'm your host, Al Warren, and uh, co-host today is Stephen Lampley. Nice to be here. Okay. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> Kep, Kep Thompson is off. Um, now, today we are uh, covering the book called Sidetracked, and it's the portrayal and murder of Anna Kitchart. And uh, our author is Richard T. Cahill, and um, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so let's talk a little bit about you to start. First of all, um, how did you get um, caught on this book? Like, what, what drew you to writing about this story? Well, um, I knew the, uh, the victim, Annie Kithcart. Um, we went to high school together. She was a year ahead of me. Um, as I noted in the introduction, we really weren't friends. She was a cool kid, and big surprise, I was a geek. But uh, So we knew each other, but and I assume it's still the case, but, I, but definitely in those days, if you were a really cool kid, you didn't want to be seen with a not-so-cool kid, or you might lose your status, you know. But And the only time you'd see a cool kid talking to a not-so-cool kid is if they were making fun of them or trying to humiliate and stuff like that. But she never did. She was always very nice to anybody that she talked to, and little things like that get remembered, and uh, especially if you're a not-so-cool kid. And uh, so, you know, I remembered that. And, you know, and then in 1988, during the summer of 88, uh, after she was to graduate and I was done with my junior year, this murder happened, and it caught a lot of us by surprise. Uh, and it just was something that anybody really who went to high school and knew her, I think it stuck with them all these years because there were, there were always so many unanswered questions, as there are in these types of cases. Yeah, and and um, now so later in your life, but so you've become a lawyer and you're you're working with the legal profession. Um, yes. What brought you back to to actually doing the book? Like, uh, just just as it wouldn't go out of your mind, or what was it? Well, I had written my first book, which was uh, called Halpman's Ladder about uh, the Lindbergh kidnapping. That was something I had been working on for a long time, kind of as a hobby. And I wanted to prove to myself I could write a book. And then circumstances came about where my father passed away and I needed something to throw myself into just so I wouldn't think about it. And I threw myself into finishing that and then getting it published. So I had that published and so forth. And after about a year and a half, I, you know, I, a lot of people say you should write another book. And I got thinking about it. And I thought, what would be something that would be interesting? And then the whole thing with Annie came back to me because, you know, I had an there were never any books written about it, and uh, mine's the first. And it's a very interesting case. You know, it involves Al Sharpton and Alton Maddox, and it has a not not related to the famous Tawana Broly case, but it happened in the background of it, in the shadow of it, if you will. And plus, I would have an advantage over any other author because I knew the people. The research wouldn't be as intense because I wouldn't have to research personalities of different people. I knew them all. I knew Mike Cavanaugh, the DA, and later a judge. I, I knew the uh, Mike Brune, who was the city court judge at the time. I knew a lot of the police officers. I knew the victim. I didn't know the defendant other than to know of him. I knew his cousin, who had the same name. In fact, when they announced they had arrested him, I thought it was his cousin. And I remember saying to my father, there's no way his cousin but it was that type of guy. And then, they, then I realized I saw the age and realized it was his older cousin. But um, 
So all those things, and I felt it gave me an opportunity to tell a story that I thought deserved to be told. And as I started looking into it, I really had my desire to write the book strengthened because there have been some murders in Kingston, and there's been young people murdered, as there is in every community, unfortunately, throughout the country and perhaps the world. But Annie was largely forgotten when it came to the media. After the conviction, she was never mentioned. There was never anything. You know, like some local newspapers will say, hey, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this happened. There never really was anything, and it was as if she had been forgotten. And I just didn't think that was right. I thought she deserved to have her story told, and she shouldn't just be forgotten. I know her family certainly didn't, but... I just thought it was time to write it, and I thought it would be a good book. And fortunately, uh, Wild Blue Press, my publisher, agreed, <laughs> and they agreed to publish it. What What exactly um, is it about the case that do you think keeps um, keeps the media from talking about it, or or the news in the local area saying ten years ago or twenty years ago? Or, is there something in particular you think that they stay away from it on purpose? I can't say that I know that one way or the other. Right. Um, the thing about the case was that initially it made national news because it was thought to be, because you know this, this poor young lady is found, she's bludgeoned and choked, and the letters KKK are scratched into her thighs. Immediately there's a thought of a racial uh, motive for the crime. And with the Tawana Brawley matter, which also had a very strong racial motive, uh, at least allegedly, um, and so forth. That brought it forward. And then, of course, Reverend Al Sharpton and his uh, followers and supporters came involved. And that, of course, that shot it up to, you know, the heights. I mean, you know, say what you want about Reverend Sharpton, but he knows how to bring attention and news media to a subject. Yeah. Uh, he's demonstrated that he can do that and do it very well. And um, I don't like his tactics, but you can't argue that the results, that if he wants something published in the media, it probably is going to be. Yeah. And so that shot right up. And, you know, you had a, a time period where he was coming in and calling our area a clan den, and that's not something people like to revisit. And and then shortly thereafter, it's determined that it wasn't a racial crime and so forth. And the two families that were involved, the Kitkart family and the Dawson family, because the defendant was named Dawson, have a, had a lot of relatives in the area. And I, I just think a lot of people didn't want to talk about it. For some, it was too painful. And for others, it was just like, geez, you know, we covered this thing, we played it up as a big racial thing that it turned out not to be. And, it, you know, yeah. I just, you know, they say the squeaky wheel gets the grease, and so to speak, and this wasn't squeaking anymore, you know. And so now now the Brawny case was uh, really, she, in essence, she claimed that she had been raped and that it was uh, mm -hmm. white supremacist, I guess. Is that is that kind of the rundown? Well, the rundown was she was found, and I'm not as, my expertise is in, uh, in the uh, Kithcar case, but I do have some knowledge of Brawley because I did look into it to get a good background of it. Um, Tawana Brawley was found um, in front of an apartment complex where she had previously lived. She was in a garbage bag, although some witnesses claimed they saw her climbing into it. But nonetheless, she was found in a garbage bag. Some of her hair had been cut. She had uh, feces, what turned out to be dog feces, smeared on her. And with what appeared to be charcoal, someone had written various racial slurs uh, that I won't repeat because uh, I don't think it's uh, proper manners, but uh, I'd, written, I'd written them on her body. Um, when as the police did the investigation, there were some officers who immediately thought that it was a hoax. Uh, others thought that there might be something to it. She contended eventually that she was attacked. I believe it was by five white people. I believe it was five. And as time went on, when Reverend Sharpton got involved and Alton Maddox and Vernon Mason, uh, who were then attorneys, they're not anymore, at least not in the state of New York, um, 
but uh, they got involved. And eventually it was claimed that one of them was a prosecutor, an assistant district attorney named Pagonis, who later sued and victoriously for slander and libel. And one was uh, a police officer uh, named Christ had killed himself. He had been depressed and he killed himself. So that was immediately taken advantage of, and it was claimed that he was part of it. And so, you know, you had this, you know, this grand claim about this, these terrible things that was done in the name of racism, and you had very prominent African-Americans who, got, who came out in support of her, like Bill Cosby uh, and uh, Mike Tyson, who was the heavyweight champion of the world, and at that time Bill Cosby had not yet gone through the troubles he's going through. <laughs> yeah. But both were, you know, both were respected men at the time, and they got involved and so forth. And, you know, it was, at least at the beginning, it was a, a, you know, it was a rally cry to stand with this 16-year-old girl who was claiming to have been brutally assaulted and raped for nothing more than the fact that she existed as an African-American female. So, you know, it was a pretty big deal. Uh, over time, it became clear that this wasn't what it was purported to be, and eventually uh, the Attorney General, who was appointed by Governor Mario Cuomo at that time, uh, did a grand jury investigation and determined that it was a hoax and a fraud. Right. Now, now when uh, Anna Kitkart got killed, uh, was it known at that time that Ronnie had been a uh, fraud, fraudulently doing this, or was it not known yet? It was the, the public was to turn not long before uh, Annie was murdered. Um, one of an individual who was one of the uh, insiders uh, with uh, Reverend Sharp and his supporters came out, and he announced to the world that this was that this was being made up. It was a hoax that. He alleged that Sharpton and his supporters knew that uh, Tawana Brawler was lying and didn't care. They were trying to make a name for themselves. Uh, Reverend Sharpton and his supporters vehemently denied it, denied that, and they went on the Richard Bay Show, if you remember that one from years ago, <laughs> and a few other programs. It's been a long time, yeah. but uh, almost 30 years. But um, it makes me feel old. But anyway, I know. I know um, every day. <laughs> yeah. So they went out and they vehemently denied it. So the public was, you know, heard that. So the move was just starting to turn, and then this, Murder happens, and then a few days after the murder, it was revealed because the police held it back initially, as they'll sometimes do for a good reason. When it was revealed that uh, Annie had the letters KKK scrawled on her thighs and the letter K on her stomach, it, you know, immediately the media said to Sharpton, do you think there's an involvement? And he jumps right in along with uh, his supporters and, uh, you know, and starts making claims that there's a racist cult operating in the Hudson Valley and that they, they're going to do their own investigation because they think it's related. You know, some people, including myself, think it was a golden opportunity for them to try to turn the subject away from some of the now beginning uh, suspicions on the original case and try to drum things back up. Yeah. Yeah. So it it really had an effect on the case. Um, Oh, yeah. Well, so let's let's do some of the basics of uh, Anna Kitkart. Um, How did how did it happen um, at the time? So what what was the story? Okay. Uh, on the mo- very early morning of July 12th, there were two women who worked as nurses at Kingston Hospital, which is what it was called then, it had a different name now. But nonetheless, they were on their way. They parked their cars on a road called Foxhall Avenue, and they were walking to work. Now, behind Kingston Hospital in those days, there was a set of abandoned railroad tracks that ran back there. It, it had last been owned by a company called Conrail, but they stopped using it as train service in 1975. For the most part, the rails were still there. There was some of it ripped up, but they weren't maintaining it anymore because they didn't use it. So it's gotten overgrown with a lot of weeds and so forth and some trees and what have you. But 
that area behind the hospital was off during the daylight hours. It was often used as a shortcut. It was used by kids to play hooky uh, from high school, which was across the street. Uh, but during the evening hours, it was often used as a place for bums to sleep, for drinking, you know, drugs and things like that. It was a relatively nefarious place at night. So this is uh, approximately 6.30 in the morning. The sun is up. And as they're walking by, uh, a man who clearly looked like a, a, a bum or a homeless man comes out of the wooded area where the tracks are. And he's clearly agitated. Uh, his name was Kiernan. And he told the two ladies that he had found he had found something that was either, as he called it, a love doll or a body. So they said, well, go over to the payphone and call the police. And he went to do that. They then went down and looked down. They were both nurses, and it didn't take them long to realize that the, it was uh, a girl who had been murdered. Uh, she was nude except for her bra, although that had been pushed up. Um, and she uh, initially, I mean, she was African. She was well, she was of mixed race. She was African American. Her father was African American. Her mother was Caucasian, but she was relatively light skinned. So initially, one of the two nurses thought she might be Asian. They weren't sure. Um, and uh, in any instance, um, so they came out and. Kieran wasn't able to use the payphone. It was broken, which was you know, all too common back <laughs> when we had payphones. <laughs> yeah. So one of the nurses went into the hospital, and they called the police. The police come, and they seal it off. And there were a few people that had used that place, that area to go cut through to go to work. And one of them was in the area when the police, well, actually three of them were when the police arrived. And, you know, that actually caused the problem because one of them, they weren't able to, they said, come here. And one took off running. The other two complied. The one who took off running got away, and he eventually gave an interview to a TV station that existed in those days, and he mentioned that he had seen the letters KKK on the legs, and eventually the police had to release that to the public because the, the news media would have broken if they hadn't. Right. In any instance, so they found her, and they determined that she had been choked and she had been bludgeoned. Um, interestingly, though, their two witnesses at the eventual trial, their medical witnesses, their experts, would disagree one said he thought she was choked first and then strangled. Or excuse me, was strangled first and then beaten. I beg your pardon. And the other one thought that the beating came first. And they both gave scientific reasons why. Well, that's a very important difference because if you have a situation where she's choked and then beaten, one could a good defense attorney could say, well, there was an argument, he grabbed her, he choked her, she went unconscious, he panicked, thought she was dead and decided to make it look like a crazy person did it, and that's manslaughter. Right? Right. You could argue it's depraved and difference murder, but likely it's manslaughter. On the other hand, if she's beaten first and then picked up after she had her face smashed and then choked, there's no way you're arguing anything other than murder. So it's two very different uh, scenarios, and yet the two uh, doctors or the experts disagreed as to what happened first. So it was a you know, a very another thing that makes it an interesting case. But yeah. The actual cause of death was listed as both strangulation and blunt force trauma to the head. Well, and they, but they couldn't determine because I thought that they could um, tell if the body was still alive when it was uh, being beaten. I kind of thought that, but they said that she was alive when both happened. Okay. The question is which was first. Right. Um, you know, the, uh, the they were both agreed that the cuts on her stomach and her legs were uh, that their heart was beating when it started, but. One of the legs, uh, the, her heart stopped beating, and, and so one of them was just immediately after uh, she had died. So they had a pretty good idea of everything that was done to her before she died and after. That they could tell. But as to the order of things, 
The only thing they were certain of is that the KKK was likely done last because they could see one of the legs of the heart was still pumping and one was not. But as to whether it was choked first or beaten later, they couldn't tell. I think the evidence more strongly suggests she was choked first, but yeah. that's just me. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and, and so 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 here we go. We 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 they found the body. She's dead. Um, what was what was the first kind of inclination by the cops at that time? Um, well, they knew that they had the possibility of a racial motive. They also knew it could be something that was there to throw them off. Um, they don't. And their actual original reports initially do not suggest that they were following one at all. Um, they went about it very methodically. Uh, they divided their team up. Of course, they had the people doing the forensics, and they had uh, uh, Detective Ricky Crom was in charge of the, of the collection of evidence. And they also then uh, sent a series of officers out to do a neighborhood canvas to see who had seen what. And they also uh, had a group basically try to put together the last day that Annie Kithgart was alive to show where she was and what she did. And they, had, they did that pretty well. And they were just following that. They never really, they held back from the media that they, about the KKK. Chief Riggins, the late Chief Riggins, said that um, he had done that because he was concerned, his, his words, not mine, that every nut in town would, call, would, would be calling in if he released it. So uh, they held it back. But their, their notes do not suggest that they were locked in on one theory. I mean, understand they ended up making an arrest within a week, so they never, it wasn't like a long-term investigation where they were focused on this or that. They were in the process of gathering things when they got a solid lead, and then that led to the arrest that they made. Okay. And so what determined them to, like, who did they arrest, and, and how did they get to that person? Well, um, while they were doing their canvassing, um, they got, there was a, a, an anonymous phone call that came in that was made from a town called Port Ewan, which is a small hamlet, actually, uh, just across the Rondell Creek. So you're talking five, ten minutes away. And it was from a payphone. And this person was a woman. She called it, and all she said was, the girl that got killed behind the hospital, Jeff Dawson did it. And she hung up. So they had that name, but they didn't know for sure whether it was a crank or whatever. But they had it, and they were going to look into it. And then... Um, one of the detectives had said that they were hearing around town that somebody was, was telling people that I hear Jeff Dawson did it. So they ended up tracing that rumor down within about four hours to a woman who lived on a road called Jansen Avenue, which was right near the murder scene. And they pressed her on it, and she eventually said that she was told that by a man named Todd Schleed and his girlfriend. So they went and they talked to them, and they eventually found out that Todd Street's girlfriend was the woman who had called the police. And what they pieced together from it was that um, on, the day of, on the day that the body was found, in the afternoon, um, Todd Street was driving down Broadway, which was another road nearby, and he saw Jeff Dawson walking along, and he called him over because they were friends, and he, asked if he gave him a ride. And... As he rode, he turned left onto Foxhall Avenue and went right by the area, which was the entrance to the railroad track, the old railroad tracks that I mentioned. And the police, of course, were there guarding it, you know, making sure nobody could go into the scene as they're supposed to. And he claimed, Schley claimed that Jeff Dawson was in the back seat when he saw the police slid down sideways into the seat so he couldn't be seen. And when I asked him, what are you doing? He said, I murdered someone last night. And he also claimed that after they got out of the car that he 
I won't use exact language because I don't know that it's appropriate for radio, for public radio, but he, uh, he said, you know that blank Andy Kithgar? I killed it. So what the police then did is they asked Todd Schley to wear a wire, and he went out and he went to go see Jeff Dawson, and they recorded him having a conversation with Dawson. And in that recording, Dawson said, yeah, he said uh, she was, uh, he used an expression from the 1980s. He said she was bugging which was a slang expression in those days that kind of meant she was uh, pestering me. And uh, I pushed her, and she fell, and she hit the back of her head, and that, which is somewhat inconsistent with the evidence. Not 100%, but fairly inconsistent. Um, and uh, in any instance, he said, so you killed her? And he went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, then they, at that point, they arrested him, and they brought him in, and they did a lengthy interrogation. But that's how they got their attention sent to Jeff Dawson. It was... A classic situation of uh, an alleged criminal running his mouth. Yeah. What was the uh, atmosphere in the community then at the time? Like, w was there a lot of fear? Did they think it was sort of a, uh, some sort of serial killer or some sort of... Uh, what was the... No. No. Well, it depended on certain things. I mean, those of us who knew Annie, we were stunned. I mean, you know, the idea that somebody would kill Annie was shocking because she was such a nice person. We, you know, some of us had known that she had been, like a lot of kids that age, had been experimenting with things. Uh, back in the 1980s, powdered cocaine was very prominent, almost being used like pot back then. It was very common. And, you know, some of us knew that she was, you know, an occasional user. She was by no means an addict or anything like that, but she was partying it up. And she was coming to that point where a lot of teenagers do where they have to make a decision. Am I going to keep partying it up or am I going to grow up, get a job and do what I have to do? By all accounts, she was getting ready to get her life together. She told people she was going to go back and get her GED. She was actually looking for a job that afternoon. So she, it looked like she had intentions of straightening things out. She never got the chance. So there was that. There was sadness there. There was some tension, um, you know, because of Al Sharpton coming to Kingston and making his outrageous statement. Um, the local African-American leaders were much more tempered. Um, they all said that, yes, there's racism. It's a big concern. But we want to wait to see more of the facts and the evidence before we're going to make it say anything definitive. And good for them. That was the intelligent way to handle it. And they turned out to be absolutely right because the facts showed something different later. Because uh, Jeff Dawson, I didn't say this before, but Jeff Dawson is African-American. So there was not a white versus black um, racial aspect to him doing anything. But nonetheless, um, so there was that. Uh, there were some people that were concerned about, well, you know, my God, what's Sharpton doing here? There was a lot of concern that the chaos that had enveloped the Kipsy was going to come to Kingston. Um, you know, but for the most part, Kingston is a community that always comes together, and uh, they've done it over the years, and that's pretty much what they did. A lot of people rallied around the Kipsy family and allowed them their privacy, um, you know, and, uh, you know, and waited to see what was going to happen, and like I said, about a week afterwards is when they made the arrest, and that kind of people were like, okay, good, they got the guy. It's not what Sharpton is saying, you know. And it was kind of like a an exhale, big exhale, big whew type of thing. But you know, yeah. But what was uh, going back to Jeffrey Dawson? What was his background, and how did he come into? How did they come to meet at the at the tracks? How did all that take place? Okay, with Jeffrey Dawson's background, Jeffrey Dawson had a, a long criminal record, not one of violence. Um, he had a lot of arrests and convictions for burglaries, not home burglaries, but burglaries of business. Uh, he broke into a Sears, he broke into another store, things like that. He, he would steal things, he would sell it for money, and he 
actually always, up until this time, with the exception of this crime, he always pled guilty. He never went to trial. He always pled guilty. And he was actually on parole at the time for uh, one of the burglary charges. I forget which one exactly, but he was still on parole. So, but he never really had any significant violence in his past. He did have one arrest for assault where he punched somebody, but that got pled down even though he had the burglary charge. And no prosecutor that I know is going to plead down, you know, a felony assault charge to a misdemeanor when you got prior felonies unless there's some extenuating circumstances. So uh, he had no real history of violence, but he was not, he was definitely not a stranger to the criminal justice system. Um, and as far as how they got together, the belief is that they met at a bar called the Royal Grill, uh, which was less than an eighth of a mile from the murder scene. Uh, there are plenty of witnesses when they traced Annie's uh, movements that night. Uh, she was in and out of that place uh, all the time, I mean, you know, throughout the evening. And she was last seen at approximately 2.30 in the morning um, heading towards an alley that went, that was next towards, that was right next to the bar that led to a road called Jansen Avenue, which led to the tracks. Uh, but she was alone at the time. Um, there was a witness that claimed that her and Jeff Dawson were together in the bar. Strangely, that witness wasn't called at trial, which leads me to believe they questioned that witness's credibility. But, um, or she, maybe they weren't available. That's not entirely clear. Were I the prosecutor, I would have called her if she's credible. But um, the belief is they met either in the bar or probably around the corner from the bar where Jansen Avenue and Foxhall Avenue meet. Um, and they then went into, you know, the defendant would eventually admit that they did go into the area where she was found together. As to what happened back there, his version is very different than the evidence. He says that she was trying to say, let's go do something, which I do believe because every witness – talking to them, and she, she was asking, let's go do something, because uh, she got separated from the two friends that she was with, and most of the night she was looking to get a drink or to, you know, hang out with them, something to do. So it makes sense. Dawson then said she kept, and he said, he kept passing, she said, leave me alone. He claimed he pushed her, she fell, she hit her head, and he said he panicked, and he couldn't tell she had a pulse because his own pulse was uh, going crazy, he couldn't tell. His claim is he then leaves the area, goes up to what used to be called Old City Hall. It was abandoned. It's since been refurbished, but it was abandoned. And he said he sat there for about two hours, and then he came back just to check on her because he was concerned. And she said at that point, somebody else must have come along because she, would, she had been stripped and uh, her clothes were in a pile. And he said he then took the clothes and he, he got blood on his shirt, so he took his own shirt off, and he dumped the clothes in an alley where they were later found. Um, you know, considering it was pitch black back there, I, it, it's really questionable the idea that somebody just happened to come along, be able to see her on the ground, because it was so dark, if you didn't know she was there, you probably wouldn't have seen her, and say, hmm, here's this person laying here. I know. I'll kill her and take her clothes. Yeah. It, you know, it, was just, it didn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, I do it you know, all the time. I... You know, it made no sense. Now, of course, at the trial, that tape was never played, which to me was a mistake, and I outlined this in the book. I think what, what Mike Kavanaugh was doing, Mike's a good prosecutor, he went on to become a judge, and I had a lot of respect for Mike. I think he presumed the defendant was going to testify, because most people thought that he was going to try to say, I didn't intend to kill her and try to get a manslaughter as opposed to murder. I mean, the most he could have done on a manslaughter in New York in those days was 15 years. Murder was 25 to life, and he might not get out at all. So I think he held it back, hoping he'd testify, and then he could use it to impeach his credibility. And then when he didn't testify, he couldn't put it in evidence. That's, that's my guess. That would that'd be the only sound strategy I can think of to uh, not play the tape. I would not, though, but that's just, again, that's just me. 
but uh, you know, another strange twist in the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, several. How how was it then when he got arrested? Um, so how how did they try him? What, what was what was the best evidence against him? Well. The prosecutor probably would tell you that the best evidence was they brought in a, um, a dentist who took molds of his teeth. Uh, they had found a bruise on uh, Annie's shoulder that they believed was a bite mark. And this, uh, this expert testified that uh, he felt that the bite mark was made by the defendant and, and was consistent with the uh, dental mold that they got from the defendant. I'm not convinced that that's that great of, an e of evidence because... Um, during cross-examination, he said, well, he was, he was pointed out and said, this doesn't match. He says, yeah, well, it looks like what happened was he bit her and then she moved away and he re-bit her a second time, so it looks like two sets of teeth, but it's really one. Also, as I note in my book, that type of testimony, of expert testimony of uh, dental impressions uh, for a bite mark on a course has come under serious attack in a lot of cases. And there are several cases, a couple of my outline in my book, where uh, DNA evidence, when that came along, was able to prove that a person who was convicted didn't commit the crime, even though experts said it was his bite mark. So I don't think personally much of bite mark evidence, but I think the prosecutor would have said that was their strongest evidence. Hmm. The strongest evidence that I think they had, they didn't use. I think the audio tape of, of uh, Dawson's uh, statement to the police is the strongest evidence because he puts himself on the tracks with her at the time that she was killed. And he tells a story that is too fantastic to believe and that is contradicted by the evidence. I mean, I think that in and of itself, his statement puts him on the line for manslaughter alone, and if it's not found credible, and I don't think it would have been, it locks him into the murder because it's so fantastic to believe that somebody else came along and completed the murder. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, today, if this case had happened today, I think the evidence would have been much, much stronger because the forensics are so much better. Uh, I mean, they found blood on a variety of things. They actually, but a lot of it couldn't even be typed. I mean, today they could do DNA with a drop of blood. They couldn't back then. And, and DNA was just starting, and it was rarely used at the time. And, you know, there were still legal challenges to be made as to whether it would be allowed. But, I mean, they had enough blood that, because uh, they found, they, they did find a pair of jeans when they did a search of uh, the defendant's home with a warrant. And they found a speck of a speck of blood on the jeans, um, and they claimed that they tried to claim that that showed he was there, but they couldn't even type the blood to tell you if it was any Kithcart's blood or if it was Dawson's or what have you. Today, if they did a DNA and they found a lot of her blood on his jeans, case closed. It's over. Right. You know, well, there's do, no other way to explain it. Do they save that, and can they go back to something like this? I don't know if they've saved it. Um, probably not. Um, because all the uh, appeals are done, so there's no chance of a retrial. They might have saved it, but at this point, there's no reason to, because they, they got out of conviction. He was convicted. Did 25, he was sentenced to 25 to life. Interestingly enough, about a month before my book was to be released, he got parole, and he moved, and he came back to the, back to the Kingston area. So here I am, a month, <laughs> a month later, putting out a book that says this guy did it, and he's released on parole in my hometown. Talk about Murphy's Law. Yeah, yeah. You better advertise your address. <laughs> <laughs> My buddy might say you better get your pistol permit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, no, do, I don't think he's going to do anything. If anything, if you, in theory, if he was going to go after anybody, it would be his friend Todd Schwee who wore the wire. That's what 
uh, you know, what uh, got him locked up. I'm not me writing about it. It's almost 30 years later. Yeah. And like I said, he doesn't have a history of violence, and I don't think he intended to kill her. I think he did kill her, but I don't think it was his intent. Right. But, you know, I, I, so I, I, I don't actually believe he's going to kill her. Yeah. I hope not, but I don't think so. No. Well, you know, so how how was the reaction when your book came out in the community? Do you and even researching and if you talk to people, I guess you knew a lot of them, but um, mm-hmm. were people okay with it? Like, were they kind of helpful and into it, or sometimes not? Or how did you find it? A lot of it depended on how well they knew me, because you know the immediate reaction is, "Oh my God, what are you going to do with this?" Because she was found naked with her head bashed, part of her head bashed in. And the immediate reaction was, oh, my God, are you going to write a book, you know, like an Inquirer or uh, World Weekly News kind of book where, you know, you have these horrible pictures out there, you know. And um, the prosecutor who was in charge of what we call FOIL or Freedom of Information Law requests uh, asked me about it because uh, there was some questions of what she was going to allow me to see from the district attorney's file. And I told her, I said, look, I give you my word as an attorney and as a gentleman, I have no intention of using any photographs of her at the crime scene, none. I might use pictures from the crime scene, like the entrance, so people can see what it looked like, and maybe some of the physical evidence it's found. But I, I said, I gave you my word, I, I will not use them. I said, I, I don't even want to have to look at them. I don't. That's not the way I'd like to remember any, and it was very difficult seeing them. But I needed to look at it to get a feel for the crime itself. If I'm going to write about the crime, I have to see everything to really, in my mind, have a picture of what transpired. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I was looking forward to that. Very tough day that day when I saw them, but I didn't use them. I, you know, uh, most of the pictures I used came from the Daily Freeman, the local newspaper. And I'm very indebted to that. It was pictures that their reporters took, you know, of uh, some of the proceedings in court at the time. They got a picture of uh, Jeff Dawson's reaction when he was convicted, which is a great photograph. It really is. And they got some pictures of Al Sharpton and his supporters, and, and a lot of and a lot of the people, so I could put faces to names. But uh, but um, most people who knew me knew you know, the type of, type of person I am and the way I was going to write it, that I wasn't going to do anything to disrespect Annie. Um, you know, I mean, she got hit pretty hard in the media because, um, first off, and it, this is where the title comes from, by the way, sidetracked. Some people think, well, she was found by the side of the track. No, that's not the title, reason for the title. The reason for the title is, the first the investigation gets sidetracked with all of this uh, stuff from Al Sharpton, and then you get... Uh, an allegation uh, that the guy who found her, Kiernan, he gets arrested and gets accused of um, orally desecrating the corpse in a sexual manner. I won't go into details of what it is, but you get the idea. Right. Um, and that comes on the newspaper. That, you know, that disgusting allegation. And meanwhile, everything about Annie herself is getting knocked out of the paper with all this terrible stuff. And there were a few articles, but uh, largely all the articles you would see that talked about her or, you know, that would give you all the memories... They kind of got blown off the front page, and so she gets sidetracked. And then her family had to secretly hold the funeral several hours before it was announced it was going to be because uh, they didn't want the media there sticking a microphone in their face. Well, how do you feel? Well, how the hell do you think they feel? <laughs> yeah. you know? um, so they got sidetracked uh, in their efforts to mourn her. And uh, her friends who wanted to go to the, to the uh, funeral, and I was one of them, we got sidetracked because we didn't know because they weren't making it public. And I understood what they did. Um, and so, you know, and she had the investigation sidetracked. Her whole life got sidetracked by being murdered. And uh, I just thought it fit. I mean, and it goes into also why I wrote the book. I thought she deserved to have her story told. And, uh, they also tried to play her up as being some kind of a, a drug addict, and she was not. 
Did she experiment with cocaine? Yeah. So did a lot of 19-year-old kids in the 1980s. That yeah. make them drug addicts or bad people. Yeah. And she wasn't a bad person. Everybody that knew her liked her. Well, I guess I guess it sells better, right? I mean, if you have some sort of a controversy like that, you can you can sell it better. I I don't know. Um, I suppose. You know, I it's the same as like you said when the media comes out and says, "Well, how do you feel?" Well, yeah, it's, it's like the stupidest yeah. question. You know, they they get yeah. get someone in the middle of a tornado or a hurricane after their everything's ruined. Or how does it feel? Well. <laughs> Like, well, let's have your house destroyed, and you can, and you'll know. Yeah, I just, I, it's just <laughs> yeah. one of the questions I could never understand. It's just, it's just yeah. a, a reaction thing. So, so he was surprised that he got convicted then. No, I don't think so because he actually um, during the trial. One of the things I found was in the district attorney's file. Um, they found him unconscious in his cell, and they thought that. Uh, during the trial, and they thought that he tried to commit suicide, so they brought in a social worker and a psychiatrist to meet with him to make sure he wasn't a risk, and they put him on suicide watches to be safe. And some of those notes survive, and those notes indicate that he made statements about how uh, he's on trial for murder, and it's going really badly, and he didn't like his attorney, and he thought he was in real trouble, and that he was a multi-time, uh, he'd been convicted of multiple felonies, so he figured the judge wasn't going to show any mercy. So that suggests that, you know, he had a pretty good idea that he was in big trouble. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so he appealed, of course, as normal, and he spent his, uh, you he, said 25 years? Uh, no, he actually served about 29. Oh. He was sentenced to 25 to life, but he served, he served about 29. And uh, the sad thing is um, the Kithcart family wasn't told about that he was getting out until uh, he, it was in the newspaper because um, Annie's parents have both since passed away, and I guess they didn't know that she had a sister who's still alive. So they found out about that in the uh, news, which was unfortunate. Yeah. Now, did, have you heard anything from him or any reaction of the book or anything? About from the defendant? Him? Yeah. No. No, no I heard nothing from the defendant. I did get contacted by the, just before the book came out, uh, I did an interview on a local radio station there, and, I did get contacted by the husband of one of her cousins who was worried about it, asking me, you know, what tact I was taking, whether I was going to stay. And I told him, I said, if you want to set up a meeting with the family, and I'll give them, I'll talk to them, I'll even give them a, a, a preview copy of the book so they can see it. And they'll see I treated Andy very nicely. I think I did a pretty good job, uh, uh, at least I'd like to think so, of uh, uh, honoring her memory. And I did nothing to say anything bad about them. Um, they never really followed up with that. I, I mean, the, the guy who called me knows me, and uh, we have a respect for one another. He's, he's actually currently a city alderman. I used to be city alderman some years ago, staying ward. So, you know, we know each other. We respect one another. So I think he, you know, once I told him, I think they, he took my word on it. But, uh, you know, I've gotten contacted on Facebook by some of her friends from high school days, and some of them were, you know, you better be good to her, and some of them, you know, some of them were, I'm so grateful somebody's telling her story. You know, it varied with different things like that. But for the most part, everything I've gotten has been positive. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I think at a, a point not to write, intentionally write something salacious. Uh, you know, I, I looked at, before I, I researched the heck out of something before I write it to make sure, one, I can write something that I'll be proud of, and two, something that's going to be interesting that people are going to want to buy, because what's the point of writing a great book and everybody goes, eh, you know, so... <laughs> you know, it, it takes a little bit of, you know, and this had everything it needed. Um, 
you know, and I, you know, I, I was doing the research, and I remember saying to my mother, my mother's a retired uh, teacher, so she always does the initial editing when I, when I write, because <laughs> oh. uh, I get going on a roll, and I just want to, you know, so she likes to do that, it's fun, so, I, you know, and she's good at it, too, so. Yeah. Um, you know, old school grammatarian, grammatarian you know. Oh, well, that's <laughs> so, good. That's you know, great. I oh, it is. It yeah. is. And, uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to make sure that uh, if I couldn't have written in a way, that, if, I, if I couldn't have written in a way that would have presented any positive light, I wouldn't have written it. Because I, I, I wouldn't have wanted to put her, if I couldn't, if the evidence showed that she was a drug addict or something, I wouldn't have written it because I wouldn't have wanted to put the family through anymore. Yeah, I, don't, it, it, so. I, I think it said something about the book as well. Like if it comes out and it's real, uh, real kind of nasty and bad pictures and all that stuff, it kind of makes it trashy anyway, right? So um, it does. And the other thing I, I that drives me crazy is when you see a book come out about a famous crime, and of course now they've got this brand new suspect and so forth, and it makes big headlines and so forth. And you read it, and you, within thirty seconds you're going, oh no, no, <laughs> this guy didn't do it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You see that with the Zodiac. Yeah. So a lot with the Lindbergh kidnapping. Yeah, I yeah. can usually refute those in 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> I, totally. Yeah. It's just, it's endless. Yeah. I know. It's just, uh, we deal with it all the time. And actually, that that, yeah. that book of yours looks really interesting. I didn't realize you'd written that book. Uh, I mean, I did, but I didn't click until now. So um, that would be great to have you back talk about that because we've done the Lindbergh case. I've, I've only done it with, with the... Um, Profilers, you know, uh, uh, John Douglas and Old Shaker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They wrote a book where they talked about it, and their book, their book was excellent. Yeah, um, and that's kind I of what I disagree with one or two things, but their book was a lot of fun to read. It was well written. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot of respect great. for both of them. They're good yeah. at what they do. They're great. They're great. I love, I love having them on the show, and I love their books. And uh, it gives you good things to think about. At least it's uh, well written. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's good. Oh, it's very well written. And yeah. I don't agree. I mean, I. I've heard him give some of his theories, and I don't agree with his theories. But and people may you know say, "Well, how can you disagree with his theories and still respect him?" It's because he's good at what he does, and just because we don't come to the same conclusion doesn't mean I don't respect the man. You, you know, you, you look at his career, what he's done. I don't know how you can't respect him. He's good at what he does. Oh yeah, I agree. I agree totally. Well, what's your uh, what's your, you have a, you have another another book uh, planned for us, or what's your next book coming out? I don't know yet. Uh, you know, I need, I think I kind of need time to unwind from this one first, uh, because sure. it's a lot of effort and time. Uh, I'm looking at a few things. There's another crime in Kingston I'm looking at. Uh, there's a crime from back in 1830s in New York City that I'm looking at. Um, I take a lot of time picking what I'm going to write about it because, as I said, you got to pick something. Just because a crime sounds interesting doesn't mean it's going to make a good book, so you have to take your time and go through it and pick the right one. Um, you know, We'll see. I mean, you know, one of the ones I looked at for a long time because I think it's such an interesting case, but it's a great example of a book that's interesting, of a case that's interesting but won't make a great book, is uh, a famous case. uh, uh, You've heard of the case, uh, they call him D.B. Cooper? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, that is a famous and a fascinating case um, where, you know, the guy who uh, basically holds up a plane and ends up diving out of the back of the plane. Again, you know, and there's a lot of questions, did he survive or did he not? Well, the problem is, I can write about it and tell you all about it, but I don't know the solution. Nobody does. And it wouldn't be that good of a book because, like, okay, I can get all this from all these other books. What are you telling me? Well, I'm telling you it's interesting, but I don't know. <laughs> you know, it, so it wouldn't be right. Unless you come up with a good solution that'll work, 
Yeah. It's not, you know, it, you know, it's not going to be, you'll, you might sell a lot of books because a lot of those books that suggest somebody, even when they get refused, sell a lot yeah. because making an accusation is sometimes more interesting and, uh, uh, type of thing, uh, than it is to say, like in my book on the Linder case, well, the guy who was accused and convicted, he did it. Well, uh, okay, that's not, that's uh dog bites man, you know, yeah. but it, it, you know, so You'll sometimes sell more books with that, but I'm more concerned when people look at my books, they're going to say, okay, I can rely on this guy. You know, when he tells me is I'm true or what he believes strongly to be true, it's not some wild, you know, uh, you know like the old insert show. Or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's kind of, it's good to have that reputation. I know uh, uh, sometimes it's hard if you have publishers, but, you, you know, uh, uh, Wild Blue is a great publisher. So, yeah, I have no complaints. Yeah, no, Steve's good. Well, it's been it's been very interesting. I've really enjoyed having you on the show. Um, our our guest has been Richard Cahill, and uh, the book is Sidetracked. Um, thank you for being on the show with us. Joining us now. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.